Good afternoon again, everyone. Welcome to the CHEST COVID-19 webinar series for Tuesday, December 17th. I'm Steve Simpson. I'm your fortunate moderator for the day and also the president of CHEST for 2020 through 2021. I hope that you've been listening the last couple of weeks to our series that we put together to close out the year. The entire series is or will be available for viewing and listening pleasure on the CHEST website, uh, where you've grown accustomed to go uh, for these webinars. Uh, the title of the series is Hindsight is 2020, and thankfully it is hindsight, a lot of it now, what we've learned about COVID-19. Parts one and two were about systems of care during COVID-19, what we've learned there, what we've learned about bedside care in COVID-19. And today we're going to tackle some really thorny issues about what we've learned about ethics, research, and communication during this time of COVID-19, which has been a challenge for all of those things. We have an excellent and expert panel lined up for you today. And I will just point and you guys can wave and then I'm going to let them give their detailed introductions here in a moment. Uh, we have uh, Nick Bosch with us from Boston. We have John Icarino and we have Deborah DeBruin. Um, John, why don't you start by introducing yourself first? Sure, thanks, Steve. Uh, I'm John Icarino. I'm the, the Director of Guidelines and Statements at CHESS. I'm also a pulmonary critical care physician uh, on faculty at Boston University. Mm -hmm. And Deborah, please. Hi, everybody. My name is Deborah DeBruin. I am the interim director of the Center for Bioethics at the University of Minnesota and the co-lead of a statewide ethics group in Minnesota called the Minnesota COVID Ethics Collaborative. Mm -hmm. And Nick. Hi, I'm Nick Bosch. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Boston University, like uh, John, and I am uh, the principal investigator of a multi-center trial studying awake-prone positioning in COVID. Fantastic. And so today, we all of our presenters have a few slides to show you. I know you, if you have watched our webinars before that we don't always have slides. Sometimes we do, and today is one of those days. So... I believe our leadoff speaker today is John. John, take it away. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll start by um, uh, my disclosure. I don't really have any disclosures except for the fact that I am at CHEST as the director of guidelines and, and going to be speaking about guideline development. Uh, and so you know, really, I'm, I'm hoping to take just a few minutes um, and leave some time for questions and discussions. Um, but really, my little talk is going to focus on how guideline develop changes um, when you're faced with a pandemic. And really, there's a, there's a few major changes. One is that things have to happen quicker than we're used to with guideline development. Um, and two, things have to happen with a lot less evidence. So, you know, evidence-based guidelines are predicated on good evidence. And so how do we make good guidelines when we don't have that evidence, but, but physicians and patients need guidance? And so normally, you know, the normal guideline process um, for better or for worse, takes about 12 to 24 months and usually closer to the 18 to 24 month time frame. We're always trying to make that shorter, but that, that ends up being about the shortest we can produce guidelines on a regular basis with our normal level of resources. 
when you have a pandemic like COVID-19, the timeline shrinks significantly um, to a matter of months, um, sometimes weeks, and in some cases, even hours when very emergent guidelines are needed. Um, and whether patient, whether uh, providers should wear N95 masks is a great example. Um, that's, that's a case where very emergent guidance is needed and you can't take weeks or months um, to, to produce a recommendation. And so at CHEST, our normal guideline process, we use what's called the, the GRADE process. Um, and GRADE is a systematic way to produce guidelines um, where we, there's many steps involved, but the general gist is we start with impaneling a, an expert panel with multiple stakeholders. Um, we go through conflict of interest, a very important step to assure that um, any recommendations we produce are free from intentional or unintentional bias. Um, and then we go through the actual development of the guideline itself. We develop questions, we search the literature through multiple databases, develop meta-analyses, systematic reviews, um, and that leads us to uh, a evidence profile that we can then um, use to inform recommendations based on that, those original questions. Ultimately, that gets then published in the journal and then uh, disseminated um, uh, through the, the audience that we're, we're targeting. And so how do we do this when, again, we have to shrink the timeline? Well, by naturally, we have to cut out certain steps. And so really it's weighing what do you need for develop recommendations and what do you want? And really trying to parse out what, what's the want and what's the need, because we really have to focus on, on what we need. And so here at CHESS, we've done that actually through multiple iterations. We've kind of learned as we went in terms of what parts um, is it okay to cut out? You know, and honestly, probably some of the parts we cut out at the beginning, we probably shouldn't have. And, and so those are some of the things we've, we've learned along the way. Um, but it also kind of, I think, brings to the forefront, well, what are guideline recommendations um, and, and what evidence are they based on? So normally good evidence-based guidelines are based on systematic reviews of randomized control trials. Um, oh, great, we have some slides. Uh, you can go probably all, ahead, all the way ahead till you see the, the rainbow pyramid. Um, and so well, systematic reviews based on good randomized control trials, that, this is our, our normal um, uh, hope with a guideline. And sometimes we look at cohort studies, sometimes case control, but rarely, if ever, do we look at case series, case reports, um, or use just clinical experience to make a guideline recommendation. Um, but if you move forward about uh, three or four slides, you'll see slowly we start to lose these levels of evidence um, when we're talking about COVID-19. So if you go ahead one more, um, this is really where we were at, uh, at, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic. We really just had people's experience, maybe some case series, case reports, um, which have carried very high risk of bias and very low reliability. So, but at the same time, these are questions that clinicians need guidance on. So you can't just say there's not enough evidence. We can't make a recommendation because a recommendation is really needed. Um, next slide. It also brings to the forefront what goes into a recommendation. It's not just the quality of the evidence or the balance of desirables and undesirables. It's also patient values and preferences, resource use, equity, acceptability, feasibility, all important factors, particularly with something like COVID-19, an emerging new disease um, that we have to factor in when we're, we're thinking about recommendations that have very poor evidence to begin with. Next slide. 
But what else can we use? Well, we can use indirect data. Um, and this is, is, there's a lot of pros and cons of, of indirect data. Um, and with COVID-19, you know, we had SARS, MERS, H1N1, and other respiratory viruses that um, from prior years that we could at least look to to say, well, how did that behave? Um, how did that affect the healthcare questions we're looking at? The Ebola virus, just as a, a epidemic pandemic nature, um, when we're thinking about system level questions. So how can we use these other diseases to inform our healthcare questions? Certainly that's helpful and invaluable when you just don't know anything at the beginning. And maybe there's good studies in these, in these other diseases, but you have to be very careful because it's not the same, right? There are inherently differences. And so when you're forming recommendations for a different disease for this disease, you have to be open to the fact that that's going to change as we learn more and, and that you need to update those um, as we learn more about the disease. Next slide. And so really I, I put together kind of a top 10 list of, of the, the lessons we have learned um, and, and kind of what really kind of came out through our um, a little bit of trial and error as we developed guidelines through this process. Um, so first you'll see how topics are selected and prioritized. And really what this is getting at is you know, there's, I think, a instinct to just say, well, these are the guidelines we've already produced. Let's just produce them again and just add COVID-19 to the end of the title. Um, but really focusing on, well, what do patients need? What do providers need guidance in? But also, what is everyone else publishing? What is everyone else doing? And let's not repeat that. We don't need three, four societies all saying the same thing or even worse, maybe saying different things. How can we partner with other societies so that we have a single voice and actually help providers and help patients? Um, when we're forming panels, how do we ensure that all necessary stakeholders are? This is important with any guideline, but with something like COVID-19, where it's really multidisciplinary um, through a lot of the steps with infectious disease um, and, and how it affects other specialties, surgeons are affected, um, all specialties are affected, and how do we get everyone's voice on the panel? Conflict of interest was a huge one. Um, so this is something chess is very dedicated to, but early on we were very conflicted. How do you do this quickly? Conflict of interest assessment at chess is, in the past has taken us weeks. And so how do you do that when you need guidance within weeks? Um, and so how, you know, developing a, a rapid conflict of interest um, policy um, because this is incredibly important, particularly when there's poor evidence. Um, because in that case, the, the experts are really relying on their own experience, um, their own knowledge, um, much more than the evidence um, for these documents. Um, making sure you know who your audience is. So we've seen gui guidelines come up from the CDC, the NIH, um, and, and many other organizations. But are they aimed at patients? Are they aimed at providers, policymakers, hospitals? Um, and knowing kind of who your audience is can really help guide you through the from the very beginning, um, as, you, as you develop your panel through the end about what the, the recommendations and, and their implications. Number five is probably the most important one. The one thing we learned is that it's, it, no matter what you do, it's incredibly important to be transparent and consistent. Um, whatever decisions you make along the way, just being very clear about what you did and why. Um, and that I think helps your readers, helps your, your audience um, understand the limitations in your guidelines, knowing that hey, this is based on very poor evidence. Um, it's subject to change. It's, you know, it's a recommendation, but you know, it's, it's a very weak one based on low quality evidence and, and what that means. Next slide. And so just to, to kind of uh, 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 finish things up here, um, you know, how do we balance this low quality with clinician experience? How much value do we put on clinician experience? Um, you'll often hear clinician, 
expert opinion. I don't like that term because um, we all have opinions, which often is based on evidence. Um, and so expert opinion, I think, has a, a pretty negative connotation because experience is important, right? Expert experience and clinician experience and, and what people, um, sometimes that's all we have, which actually is what happened early on in COVID-19. Um, we talked a little bit about indirect data, but jumping to number eight, again, how are we updating these guidelines? You know, we, a lot of our documents that we produced in COVID-19 were in the early summer when we didn't know a lot. Now we know more. We've done, you know, there've been some studies, there's been some uh, additional literature um, and we're in the process of updating those recommendations because some are already outdated um, just you know, eight, nine months into the pandemic. And this is different. Usually in our normal guidelines, we're updating every four or five years. Um, and now we're updating every six to eight months. Um, and then the, the final two, how are we assuring this gets out to the people it needs to, gets out to clinicians um, and actually gets to the bedside. And so we've uh, taken a lot of steps um, that we initially don't, don't do with our guidelines, but now actually are, are using for our regular guideline process, partnering with other organizations, um, both uh, at the national level and the local level to, to assure that our guidelines are seen, they're visible, um, and that they're usable, that, that, that they're able to be implemented, which is uh, incredibly important to it, assuring they have effectiveness with, with patients. Next slide. And so that's really, you know, I think the, the, the gist of, of how things have changed um, rapidly uh, with guideline development, some of the issues we faced. Um, and, and so I'd love to hear any questions or, or points for discussion um, from anyone. John, I think Nick has a question. Sure. Thanks, John. That was fantastic. And um, I, my question was, you know, you, you mentioned how, you know, how is COVID different versus the same? We have this literature from other diseases and, and um, you know, more general um, supportive care management. And so my question is, how do you balance um, maybe less robust data, but COVID specific and more robust data that maybe only partially applies? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something we face a lot in terms of saying, which is more reliable? Would you rather an RCT and H1N1 or a, you know, a very small cohort study in COVID-19? There's not really a straight answer. A lot of it has to do with the studies themselves and about you know, the population and, and sort of you know, the risk of bias um, that, that goes into each. Um, you know, sometimes you would weigh one more than the other, and sometimes you, you might not. It also probably depends on how much indirectness you think there is. So, you know, um, H1N1 is probably a great example. There's probably a little bit of, of a similarity, but it's a, it's a very different virus. It's a very different disease. Um, SARS-CoV-1, maybe you say, well, you know, there's actually maybe a lot of similarities. You know, maybe we think that they're much more similar um, than, you know, H1N1. So if there's a good RCT there, maybe that's a little bit more believable um, than an RCT with H1N1. So I think it kind of depends on the degree of indirectness, which really there's not a great way to measure, um, as well as the quality of your small COVID-19 studies or um, low quality COVID-19 studies. Kind of makes me think that there's an opportunity for a third grading system. I mean, there's grading of the evidence, but also how related it is to, to the disease you're, you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, that's, so that, that's that actually good. comes in as we do make recommendations. Um, indirectness does actually um, get applied to um, whether you upgrade or downgrade your, your overall quality. Um, but it is, a, it is a sort of a different part of the process. So you're right. There probably is a, a different way to assess it earlier on. 
I'm going to take care of a little bit of housekeeping now that I forgot at the first, which is for those of you in the audience, if you have questions, please type them either into the chat or into the Q&A box that you see at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, we will. We are going to uh, have each person's going to give a little talk, and then we'll have a free-for-all discussion here in a little bit, and we'll get to as many questions as we can. So John talked about how to balance how to balance um, where we don't have information. And uh, Nick Bosch, who was next, for those of you who are late, this is uh, Dr. Nick Bosch, who's an assistant professor at Boston University, and he took uh, he took a, a very solid approach to helping to to create that balance, sort of or to overbalance in one direction or another. I guess, Nick, you will tell us that. And you look to be still muted before you start. So go ahead and, and uh, take it away. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, so the, the topic of conducting research during COVID is, of course, huge. And so this is just a word cloud for things that came to my mind when talking about research during COVID. And um, I think we've all feel, you know, a little uncomfortable because it's affected our research in many ways about ongoing research and pauses in research um, uh, funding. I, I think there, we could talk about many things today, and I, I hope we can talk about that in the, the panelist discussion. But I'm going to try to limit my talk to a, a short uh, talk about our experiences with doing a, a multi-center trial here during COVID. So next slide, I have nothing to disclose about this presentation other than being the principal investigator for this study. So early on in the pandemic, uh, at least in Boston in April, we were having a, a huge surge in the virus. Uh, everyone was working all the time in the, the clinical realm and we were all doing quote, everything possible to try to help our patients. Um, and and uh, John and I both work at the same hospital and we work in a, a safety net hospital, a large safety net hospital in New England. And I think there was a general feeling that our patients did not or potentially could not have access to the same uh, multi-center tri trials that other hospitals do. And there was concern that then patients at our hospital weren't going to be receiving the same potentially life-saving treatments that other patients might have access to. And so early on in the pandemic, there was, um, I, think, I think many of you probably feel the same way. There was a push to give some of these medications um, and treatments that weren't necessarily based on the most robust evidence. You know, hydroxychloroquine comes to mind, but there's a lot of other medications, um, cytokine inhibitors and others. And so um, based on that, we thought that we were doing right by giving the opportunity for our patients, maybe some justice and, um, and having access to these medications that we were excited about and thought that could help to save lives. And I think um, soon thereafter, we kind of realized the opposite, that rather than um, giving opportunities to our patients to try these medications that are, I think, really just just um, unknown in terms of their evidence for whether or not there's a benefit, we decided that a better way to approach this was to study these treatments and medications. And I'll, and I'll start off just by showing this quote from Singer in the Red Journal. And I think it speaks to um, me and a lot of us uh, who do research with patients who have COVID about the importance of doing research rather than just trying something. So the, the takeaway here is if, if we 
just try things on our patients. We, we ruin clinical equipose, we ruin um, usual care, and we miss out on an opportunity to find out if something works. And in addition, uh, human beings have this amazing ability to um, attribute cause and effect, but we're less good at um, detecting harm when we do things. And so um, the point here is that we have to make sure that we are um, giving access to patients equally to research so that we can um, help answer some of these questions rather than assuming we know best. Next slide. So for us, that meant prone positioning. So prone positioning in April and May came out uh, hyped strongly. It was in uh, Nedgem Journal Watch. It was in CNN Health about this life-saving therapy. Um, and it turns out that prone positioning, you can see in the lower right-hand uh, screen here, prone positioning at higher P to F ratio, so all the way on the right-hand side of the graph, is actually has a, a trend towards harm in these patients. And so just, um, this is in mechanically ventilated literature, not in awake patients. But the point here is that we were concerned that prone positioning would go the way of hydroxychloroquine or other treatments, that it would become standard of care despite not having a robust evidence basis for uh, using it, and that potentially it, it could be harming our, our patients. And so uh, that was kind of the Boston University side of things. And I'll, I'll go ahead and say next slide. But it turns out that uh, there were a lot of like-minded people across the US. So um, thanks to, to Steve Simpson, actually, he tweeted out, um, I think uh, a, really, a, a really important tweet for us in May, looking for other like-minded people who wanted to study prone positioning. So this was a, we started a multi-center trial that began out of Twitter. And so what we did is we formed a consortium of uh, investigators, these were all invest investigator initiated ideas to form a pragmatic adaptive multi-center trial. And we started off with two sites, Kansas and Boston, and we've grown to 11 sites across the, the world. And what we're doing is we're making a self-prone positioning recommendation um, on patient cell phones to look at reducing rates of respiratory deterioration and ICU transfer in patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19 but not yet mechanically ventilated. And everything's remote. Um, and right now we have sites in the US and Spain. So next slide. So rather than, I, rather than focusing on all of the ins and outs of the trials, I'd just like to talk about a couple of things that we came across that were unique to COVID-19, barriers that we had to overcome in conducting research in COVID-19, and then also some of the lessons we've learned. And so the first is this idea about shifting standards of care and equipoise, which I already mentioned. Um, however, the, it's, it's a, it's a, there's two parts of this. One is identifying a population of patients who you think will benefit um, from a study intervention, but not so much that they would benefit that it would become standard of care. Um, and then second, things are changing so fast with COVID-19, uh, especially things like dexamethasone, new medications we're realizing are effective. Um, we have to adapt to that in our trials to make sure that the um, effect that we're seeing in our trials is due to what we're studying and not all of this other changing care. So it makes for a complex um, analysis on, during these trials. So for 
this shifting standard of care, we found it was really important to engage our clinicians early, trying to identify with them who were patients that might benefit from a therapy and also uh, patients that wouldn't automatically receive this care uh, therapy. So for example, for us, uh, it was trying to decide what's the oxygen and level at which clinicians say this patient's going to be prone no matter what you say versus those patients who are maybe on no oxygen and would have uh, uh, potentially no benefit from prone positioning. The next hurdle was resource utilization. Um, the resource utilization can refer to research assistance. Um, it can refer to PPE. It can refer to the nurses who are taking care of these patients and so busy, they don't have the time to um, do anything other than clinical care. And so in designing a clinical trial for COVID-19, we wanted to ensure that everything was remote that means consenting patients over the phone as much as possible, an intervention that's also remote, and then also data collection that's pragmatic based purely on EMR outcomes. So we don't have to really talk to the patient at all or um, uh, uh, collect blood or otherwise use re uh, those resources. And then taking advantage of uh, researchers who had their research paused, especially early in the pandemic, we'll talk about how that's changed since but a lot of researchers who had their um, research paused were available to help us with uh, the trial early on. Next, limited subjects, lots of trials. Um, everyone wants to take uh, to help these patients. Everybody wants to do COVID research. And this means that patients are often, uh, at least at our hospital, being approached for three or four studies at times. Um, and so navigating this complex process of deciding which patients are right for certain studies, um, also which patients the risk benefit ratio makes sense to enroll a certain patient. So I think um, this is not unique to our institution, but having a research oversight committee that helps to navigate these different um, trials and trying to reach out to hospitalized patients is an absolute must. Um, the short timeline of COVID-19, we all are hoping that this will be a pandemic that maybe ends in 2021. And so coming up with unique ways to uh, conduct research quickly, but also safely in these patients is important. For us, that mean, uh, meant having an adaptive randomization. So having a randomization sequence that changes based on the level of benefit in both arms. So in that fashion, you're both um, uh, identifying the effectiveness of the intervention and also implementing at the same time. So you, once the study's done, you're ready to roll out to patients. And then also uh, for us as a non-FDA study, because we're not studying a medication, being able to use um, a common protocol, but separate IRB approvals at individual sites was something I think that was unique and, and helped us to um, uh, uh, get rolling quickly. And then lastly, the surge has uh, varied by geographic regions. And so a huge part of this, and, and especially with uh, Steve's help, has been identifying sites before a surge hits. And I think this is also something that the vaccine trials have recently done well, is, is having patients who are being, who are uh, having sites who are ready to start enrolling when a surge hits. And we've seen that with our study where we've had multiple sites go through lulls uh, and enrollment and also uh, very fast enrollment depending on where the surge is. All right, next slide. I think that's my last one. So in, in um, conducting our study, we've learned a lot. And so one of them is COVID burden. 
Um, we've all experienced the fatigue associated with COVID-19. We've seen our, our volunteers uh, go back to their own research. We've seen them uh, be less interested in uh, continuing the study. So there's been a lot of cheerleading that's been involved in conducting COVID research to try to get it to continue. There's been some sites who have had to seize completely because they can't afford to have their clinicians doing anything other than clinical care because they've been overwhelmed. Um, we've had to reevaluate the risk benefit ratio of our intervention based on emerging evidence and emerging guidelines. Um, and then, you know, then that means frequent protocol amendments in order to try to adapt to these changing guidelines, these changing medications. I've talked about organizing sites prior to surge. And then at least for our study, I think the, the side effect of um, implementing an all remote study has been that there are potential issues with research justice, you know, so not everyone has access to a smartphone to get a recommendation to um, prone in the hospital. And so coming up with uh, ideas to overcome some of those potential um, issues with inequities around donations or other technology that the hospital already has has been has been key to success. And then lastly, I'll just say that early collaboration has made a huge difference in, in conducting this study, uh, making sure you're engaging the stakeholders um, for an investigator initiated protocol, especially making sure that everyone has their say in, in helping the study proceed. And then reaching out to other um, studies doing the same thing for meta-analyses after your research is complete. Next slide. So that's it. Uh, there's a couple people I'd like to thank. Uh, the study's ongoing, and I think there's a lot more to talk about with research during COVID. And this was a brief overview of our experiences, and I'd, I'd love to tell you more later on. Yeah, and we will talk some more later on, Nick, but it's, it's mind-blowing. Frankly, both of these presentations so far have been pretty mind-blowing in terms of in terms of what this worldwide pandemic has done to us. So again, I'm gonna introduce our, our third speaker and, and remind you, put questions in the chat. Feel free to stick questions in chat or Q&A. And also in case you weren't here for our initial introductions, our, our final presenter is uh, Dr. Deborah De Bruin from the University of Minnesota. Gonna talk to us about uh, about communications during this uh, massive pandemic. Thank you. Um, I wanna talk to you today uh, about the importance of ethics support during public health emergencies uh, to introduce you to our process for ethics support in Minnesota uh, and to talk about its foundation and earlier ethics projects in the state and then to reflect a bit on lessons learned during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, uh, you will pick up on themes. Uh, I think um, uh, Jonathan and I have shared a lot of um, common experience <laughs> as it turns out. Um, next slide, please. I have nothing to disclose um, and I'm not gonna talk about any off-label use or investigational use, but we will talk about um, ethics, developing ethics guidance for investigational meds. Uh, I do wanna make clear that I do not lead the Minnesota COVID Ethics Collaborative on my own. Um, I want to acknowledge and thank my co-lead, Professor Susan Wolf, who's also a faculty member at the University of Minnesota. I want to thank the members of MCEC and our partners who I'll introduce you to during this talk um, and with whom we work very closely. Next slide, please. 
So why do we need ethics support during public health emergencies? As the Institute of Medicine explained in its systems framework for crisis standards of care issued in 2012, public health disasters justify temporarily adjusting practice standards and or shifting the balance of ethical concerns to emphasize the needs of the community rather than the needs of individuals. What does this mean from an ethics point of view? Under normal circumstances, or as we might say, under conventional standards of care, clinical ethics focuses directly on the needs and wishes of the individual patient. Care is to be provided to patients largely based on commitments to promote patient well-being and to respect patient autonomy. In reality, of course, those norms tend to guide care for more privileged patients because there are all sorts of challenges um, with respect to providing care um, for more disadvantaged patients. So sometimes that breaks down, um, but those are supposed to be our guiding values during normal times. In public health crises involving significant shortages of resources, public health and healthcare systems become overwhelmed and the norms guiding care must shift to focus on community benefit rather than individual well-being or autonomy. That's really the morally appropriate perspective to take in these circumstances. Next slide, please. So that shift in perspective has profound implications. It can leave health professionals facing tremendous uncertainty about how to meet overwhelming need while maintaining their fundamental professional values. Focusing on the needs of the community may seem like a betrayal of the fundamental commitments of clinical ethics. This may result in tremendous moral distress. So to give just one illustration here, if you were fortunate enough to see the earlier events in this webinar series, um, Dr. Hagab's presentation on December 3rd on changes in visitation policies in this pandemic provides a really great illustration of this issue around moral distress. She spoke very powerfully about the distress experienced um, not only by patients and their loved ones, but also by healthcare providers as patients die without the support of their loved ones. She told the story of a provider who tried to comfort a frightened dying patient, but then given the crushing need on the unit, um, the provider had to leave the patient to go and care for others and the patient died alone. That's just one example of the moral distress felt by providers in this context. The shift in focus can also undermine public trust in professionals, in health systems and in governmental agencies. And so ethics guidance designed specifically for these kinds of events is really critical. Next slide, please. So there were two projects devoted to developing ethics guidance for public health emergency response in Minnesota prior to the Minnesota, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. I led or co-led both those projects. The first was the Minnesota Pandemic Ethics Project. And the central aim of that project was to develop rationing frameworks for an influenza pandemic. Uh, that guidance was issued in 2010. The second project developed ethics guidance for crisis standards of care, and that guidance was issued in 2016. Both of these projects were conducted under contract with the Minnesota Department of Health and MDH issued final guidance for both. The process for developing um, uh, guidance in those projects involves significant stakeholder input and community engagement, and both of those projects recommended that a process for ethics support be implemented um, in public health emergencies. Next slide, please. So 
At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, I reached out to MDH and offered to help them develop such capacity. The State Healthcare Coordination Center and the Minnesota Hospital Association quickly joined the effort and Professor Wolf and I began to work with those partners to build the team and to develop the process for ethics support. Uh, the Minnesota COVID Ethics Collaborative or MCEC as we call it now includes more than 70 members from organizations across the state um, incorporating perspectives from ethics, law, public health, medicine, nursing, disaster planning and other fields. Every major health system in the state offers expertise to the collaborative, along with experts on tribal health and from governmental agencies, nonprofits, and academia. MCEC also works closely with the statewide critical care work group as well. Next slide, please. So all of MCEC's guidance is grounded in the values identified as foundational in those earlier projects. And you can see those guidance, those values here on the slide. Uh, we um, uh, identified a fundamental commitment, this pursuit of the common good that you can see reflected on the slide. And then um, uh, identified three equally important and overlapping ethical objectives that need to be balanced um, in the ethics guidance in the um, um, emergency response. So not only protecting the population's health, but also respecting individuals and groups and striving for fairness and protecting against systematic unfairness. Next slide, please. So I wanna talk briefly about how MCEC works. Um, uh, we identify the need for guidance in a variety of ways. Um, sometimes MCEC members uh, uh, raise issues that uh, make it clear that certain kinds of guidance is needed. Sometimes we get for requests from uh, the Minnesota Department of Health. Sometimes we have engagement from the statewide critical care work group. All of these kinds of inputs can give rise to the creation of new guidance. Once a need for guidance is identified, MCEC forms a, a subgroup typically to do the initial research and drafting of the guidance. And we invite subject matter experts to participate in these subgroups. So for example, um, the subgroup that created guidance for the allocation of remdesivir included clinical experts, some of whom had been involved in remdesivir clinical trials. As we worked on guidance um, around allocation of convalescent plasma, our subgroup included specialists in transfusion medicine, and leaders of blood banks. Um, once guidance is drafted in subgroups, uh, it then undergoes review by the full MCEC in plenary session. And that feedback um, from those sessions goes back to the subgroup and we engage in a process of revision and review until MCEC as a whole feels that um, the guidance is ready to be forwarded to MDH. Then MDH reviews the guidance along with its science advisory team uh, if they feel it needs further revision, it sends it back and we revise until MDH feels that the guidance is ready to be issued, at which case um, MDH issues the guidance, publishes it to the uh, MDH website, and um, sometimes uh, uh, disseminates it directly to relevant provider groups or other organizations as needed. Um, uh, even then, um, once guidance is issued, when things change, guidance is reconsidered. So this really reflects some of the things that John was talking about in his talk. So for example, when the emergency use authorization for remdesivir was first issued, little data was available for which patients benefit most from remdesivir, which made decisions about how to prioritize among patients really difficult. 
Over time, the publication of clinical trial data shed light on that question, and so we modified the guidance accordingly, and so the whole cycle begins again. Next slide, please. Um, rather than go into the detail of um, different guidances, I just want to acknowledge that there are some overarching challenges. How do we support and protect patients when the focus shifts to the needs of the community? How do we support and protect clinicians who provide care in this context? And how do we support and protect at-risk populations? Um, I think it's really important to understand that those three concerns can conflict. Um, and so a lot of the ethics work is really about how to balance them. Um, and given those conflicts, I think it really matters that the ethics framework um, um, has those three objectives and balances those three objectives that we do not solely focus on reducing morbidity and mortality. And I'm happy to talk more um, in the discussion period about how to um, um, uh, strike those sorts of balances. So this last slide, uh, next slide, please. The last slide um, just gives you further information about MCEC. The um, first web address is uh, the uh, MDH website that contains our guidance. And then there are a couple of publications that have come out of the project. Really quickly in terms of lessons learned, our experience in Minnesota really confirms for me just how important ethics support is, not just at the institutional level, but also at the level of the state. Um, I wanna say that when we originally issued the recommendations about ethics support, um, there was a lot of concern that was commonly expressed related to the lack of resources to provide such support. And by that, I mean lack of funds. Um, and I will say that I've been really inspired um, during this time about how much um, time and energy and thoughtful engagement, people are really volunteering to make this work. The second thing I'll say is that collaboration is really critical. Um, we need input on where guidance is needed, on the content of the guidance, on how to operationalize the guidance. The third lesson is that those questions about operation, operationalization are actually really critical. It makes all the difference. It's not enough to issue sort of high level principles because providers um, need to know uh, how to apply guidance in real time. So we really have to think about those operational questions and sometimes how you operationalize the guidance makes it more or less fair. And finally, as I've mentioned, the guidance documents really need to be considered living documents. Our understanding is constantly evolving um, and we need to recognize that not only new information but new realities on the ground can change um, the kind of guidance that would be appropriate. So that's it, thank you very much and I really look forward to the discussion. Okay, so make it three mind-blowing presentations here, this is just Fascinating. I guess I'll start with you, Deborah, since, since we're on you already. I, I, I jotted down this little observation that I wonder whether you have experience or knowledge to inform, and that is you talked about shifting the focus from being a focus solely on the individual patient to being uh, a more uh, community or or population based focus is is this single minded focus is this do you think something that's a uniquely or fairly uniquely u s perspective 
Um, as in, I wonder if my friends in South Africa or Brazil have the same perspective on being sort of single-mindedly focused on the individual. Uh, uh, yes. So I think that there are different um, cultural influences on how we think about the ethical values that prevail during normal times. That's essentially what you're asking. I yes, think yes. Um, in, in um, certainly in the US, um, I think in some other cultures, um, there is this real fundamental individualism uh, that then gives rise to a kind of whiplash when you have to shift to a focus on communities. Uh, whereas in more communitarian cultures, you might not have that same kind of um, dramatic mm -hmm. shift. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I Steve. wondered about that. There was a comment in the chat, by the way, uh, thank you for mentioning, mentioning moral injury. Um, this resonated with at least one member of our audience and probably more than one. Um, one uh, before I move on, uh, one quick, could you give us an example? You, you showed us the cycle of area of concern that needed to run through the cycle. Can you give us an example of one that's arisen? Um, of the kinds of overarching challenges you mean? Or, or of, a, of sort of the problem, um, you know, your one slide where, where you showed us there, there would be a consultation and then the consultation would move on and move around the circle. What's where, and, and I'm thinking these are challenges that must have arisen in maybe one location or another in Minnesota that are brought to the Ethics Collaborative so I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one is a case in which um, uh, the statewide critical care group came to us because providers were really concerned early in the pandemic about provider safety in a context of um, inadequate PPE um, and an expectation on the part of patients that standard practices around um, CPR would continue, for example. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, the statewide critical care group came to us and said, can you help us think through those issues about how to appropriately balance um, um, provider safety and um, both patient autonomy yeah. and, and patient yeah. well-being? Sure. And so there we really partnered with them and had a lot of conversation with um, uh, uh, provider groups around the state to try to make sure that the guidance that we were reflecting didn't conflict with policies at particular institutions, but that really addressed the kinds of concerns that were arising in the context. Another example is um, an example that, that kind of connects, Steve, with what you were saying um, at the beginning uh, in your pitch to get vaccinated. So we've been having a lot of conversations lately about questions about um, prioritization of essential workers um, and uh, how you figure out at what point in the pandemic you um, enact what level of priority, right? Um, and uh, so uh, essential workers are a much broader group than just healthcare workers, um, but we're recognizing in our conversations that as much as we think that there's some argument for a priority for access to certain resources anyway, um, on the part of essential workers more generally, that right now we're at the point in the pandemic where 
Um, there's such a strain on healthcare workforce that maybe even a greater priority um, for frontline healthcare workers would be um, called for. And, and there, this is one of those places where um, those concerns about operationalization really play a role in questions about how fair that guidance is. So we've been having really specific conversations about things like what metrics do you use to determine when your workforce shortage is great enough that it that it warrants a higher priority for access to resources? And then how do you track that to make sure that when your workforce shortage is more, more resolved, that you can reduce that priority so that members of the general public then have greater access to resources? Those are the kinds of balances that you have to yeah, Exactly, those are great examples. Thank you, Deborah. Um, John, I got a question for you. Um, you probably know that I serve on the NIH treatment guidelines panel. And that from the outset has been uh, conceived as a living guideline so that it's updated about every two weeks. Uh, how do you make a decision in a fluid uh, situation like this? When, when are we gonna switch over? So this is now posted online and we're continually updating or when we don't do that. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's something actually we, we struggle with with our regular guidelines. Um, and it's really been, I think, um, uh, magnified with COVID, you know, I think that the living guideline model, it takes a lot of resources, right? And there's a lot of questions of, well, who does the updating and who does the monitoring mm -hmm. and, and things mm -hmm. like that. You know, at Chess, we're fortunate enough to have great membership, one, but also great volunteers. And so we, you know, really have put it on the, the, the guideline panels, um, the chairs and, and the panelists to really kind of come to us at what point they feel there's either enough new data to change the um, quality of evidence. So even if it's the same recommendation, but perhaps you know, now there's a randomized control trial that you know, really shows what we were recommending or whether the recommendations become outdated. Um, and so, um, and that's actually become the case already with a couple of our, our documents that we're actively working on. So you know, we, don't, we haven't had the resources to be unfortunately be able to do every two right. three weeks, um, but we've kind of um, you know, developed a model to say, well, when there's en enough new data, now what point that is, is really, a, there's no great measurement there to say, oh, is one RCT enough to say that we should read right. the guideline? Um, right. you know, and, and, and at what point, you know, you make a change. It's sort of, an, honestly, it's an active discussion that we have ongoing with, with each mm -hmm. of our documents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Um, the uh, Nick, a question for you. Um, this pandemic, it's moving rapidly. There's all sorts of patients who need research. Is the pandemic more in your mind um, after your presentation? Do you balance this more as a help or a hindrance to getting uh, RCTs done? Uh, I think there's more resources um, available now. And so I, I think it's getting research done. I do think there's a real concern. It's whether or not we're doing good research. I think in many cases we are, but I think that that's where I think there's a concern. There's a lot of research being done, but are we, uh, you know, allocating those resources to the people that will accomplish their goals and, I, and, and the groups that will accomplish their goals. So I think, um, and there's no, you know, there's no overarching body saying that this is what we should do and shouldn't do. So I think overall research has certainly accelerated and, and pace during COVID. Um, but I think we have to be careful about, um, you know, disseminating things that may, um, 
may be less relevant or, or maybe even at times wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to go back to John. This is a question from the audience here that I'm going to rephrase a little bit. Um, should a guideline incorporate data that's from a preprint server and hasn't been peer reviewed yet or, or not? And what is the impact of preprint servers on guidelines? Yeah, so in general policy at Chess, we do not include um, pre-published um, documents. That, and that includes, you know, poster abstracts from conferences as well. That comes up with our, our regular guideline formation. But in, in terms of preprint, um, we don't typically, for, for that particular reason, they haven't really gone through peer review. Um, and so the reliability of those studies and whether or not there'll be changes or significant biases um, um, made it clear, it just really hasn't happened yet. Um, we don't, so we don't typically do that. And I, I will say that, um, you know, most of our panelists, we were fortunate that we have sort of experts in the field. And so their expertise and guidance often can guide us there too, where they say, oh, I mean, if they say this is a really well done study, you know, it should be published soon. Let's, you know, maybe we actually hold the guideline until we, we have um, um, a better indication of, of what the, you know, publication status of that, you know, if it's a major study, but we don't typically include those because they're, they tend to be fraught with potential for bias. And yeah. as important as getting the guideline right is, um, you also have to worry about perception and faith in the guidelines. So how are people, you know, it's great to make a, a good recommendation based on evidence, but we also want people to have faith in the process and to believe it. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's um, why we hold it to such a high standard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, here's an interesting question that for kind of for Nick and Deborah, I, I think that has been fascinating to me. Nick, you mentioned that everyone wants to do research on these patients. And I find that that everyone often includes people that have not been either pulmonary or critical care or infectious disease researchers who just have a pet idea and want in, want in on it. Um, it, it. How do you decide what's enough preclinical evidence that yeah, it's okay. We should we should let this uh, person who's never had an interest in viruses or or respiratory failure or or lungs or anything. How do how do we decide uh, who actually should be doing the research? in a pandemic like this one? Yeah, I think um, uh, for us and others, there is a executive committee that helps to make these decisions and, and is a, acts as a buffer to IRBs. Um, and I'm not, I don't, I think that at the local level is a good model. You know, you, not everyone can do research and you, will, you have to balance several factors, um, the risk benefit, um, the whether the, the investigator can accomplish what they set out to accomplish, ju just like you would, I think, with a, a grant, um, you have to gauge those things. So I think at the local level, it comes a little bit more straightforward. I'm not sure we have a great answer for more broadly, other than it's, you know, comes down to who gets funded. Yeah. Deborah, are there, do you think, does that pose any ethical issues when somebody who actually isn't an expert in this field thinks, hey, great opportunity, let's do this research now. I think it definitely poses ethical issues because you have to think about um, so many things. Uh, what is the value of the research? And is what we're gonna learn from this research, um, you know, is this a team? 
and a study design that is going to teach us something that's important and relevant um, to, to help patients or to help guide care. And, and so is what we're going to learn um, and what we're going to learn reliably, um, uh, does it justify the risk that we pose to, um, to patients in studies? And so, um, you know, I think we have to, to think in terms of those kinds of um, you know, risk benefit trade-offs where here it's not necessarily just a question about risks to, to study participants versus benefits to study participants, but risk to study participants versus benefits of the knowledge gained. And um, how do we assess that issue about the, the value of that knowledge gained is, right. is really centrally an ethics question. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Thank you for that. Well, guys, we are at the top of the hour. And as much as I am loath to sign off with the three of you here uh, for me to pick your brains, I'm afraid we're going to have to do that. I want to say thank you. Deep thanks to all three of you for your participation here and for the knowledge that you brought in, in the, I will say again, mind-blowing presentations, all three of them. I'm going to close for those of you who are on the line with a word uh, from my boss. I work half time for the in the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C., and my boss is the Assistant uh, Secretary for Preparedness and Response, Dr. Bob Cadillac, who's a wonderful individual. And uh, his admonition to us with every meeting is, is this, be positive, test negative. So with that, I will say thanks for, for being with us and everyone have a great afternoon. So this is probably a good time for me to make a plug that I was going to make later in the show anyway, and that is the plug about getting your vaccination. Those of you who are on this webinar and who are members of CHESS and uh, practicing pulmonary critical care and sleep physicians are well aware that you're on the front lines and well aware that you are exposed to patients with active COVID-19 on a day in, day out basis. I will admit that first, I hope I'm not preempting anything <laughs> Dr. De Bruyne, but, but uh, um, I will admit that I had some of my own ethical dilemmas about receiving a vaccine before vulnerable patients. But uh, I'm advocating now, after looking around and seeing how full the ICUs are and overflowing, and recognizing that without us being there on the front lines, that our patients don't have anyone to guide their care. So I think it is highly important that we get ourselves protected and keep ourselves from uh, going down the pathway of the patients that we're caring for uh, because we can't help them otherwise. So I'm here to advocate for get in line, get your COVID-19 vaccine and be around to take care of patients.